0: Today, we're looking at Psalm 130, and let me read it. Out of the depths, I cry to you, O Lord. O Lord, hear my voice. Let your ears be attentive to my cry for mercy. If you, O Lord, kept a record of sins, O Lord, who could stand? But with you, there is forgiveness. Therefore, you are feared. I wait for the Lord. My soul waits, and in his word I put my hope. My soul waits for the Lord more than watchmen wait for the morning. More than watchmen wait for the morning. O Israel, put your hope in the Lord, for with the Lord is unfailing love, and with him is full redemption. He himself will redeem Israel from all their sins. We've all uh, been at certain low points in our lives. We've all found ourselves in a a hole in our lives of depression and discouragement and despair. If you haven't, well, just wait. Uh, It'll find you. There's lots of reasons for these low points and these holes. Uh, Sometimes it's health issues, uh, accidents, surgeries. We're healthy one day, the next we're not. Um, sometimes it's financial crises. Amazing how money problems just send you into the pits. Uh, sometimes we, we find ourselves in these holes because of relationships that melt down or grief because we've lost somebody. Um, sometimes we don't know why, we just go through hard times. But perhaps the, the worst hole to be in, the, the deepest pit to be in, the worst one of all, is when you find yourself in a hole that you dug for yourself. Those are the worst. When you find yourself in a pit that you have excavated through your own sin, through your own character flaws, through your own poor judgments, your own selfishness, and suddenly you realize you're in a hole. And, and those consequences are upon you. Those are the worst ones in which we find ourselves. Uh, it, it could be when you've been telling, uh, weaving a web of lies, and suddenly one of the lies is found out, and then another one, and then the whole web begins to unravel, and you realize that it's all coming known. Perhaps you've uh, been... Um, managing a secret addiction, and then that comes to the light. Uh, maybe you have a DUI, and the drinking problem then becomes known, or that the pornography is found on the computer, or whatever, and it's it's now coming out. Um, or maybe you're a teenager, and you know you're, you've got the the church persona down, and then you've got the friends persona down, and they're totally different. And you've become very adept at managing those two worlds and keeping them separate. But then one day mom sees the texts or the whatever and, and it all comes crashing together and you find yourself caught. It's like when King David was confronted by Nathan the prophet after his affair with Bathsheba and the prophet says, you are the man. Or that moment when Peter after denying Jesus once, twice, three times, and then the rooster crows, and it says in the Gospels that Jesus on trial looked over at Peter, and suddenly it dawned on Peter what he had done, and, and he began to weep bitterly. When we find ourselves in problems of our own causing, or maybe, maybe it's something more subtle, maybe it's just waking up at two or three in the morning, and it's just us, our conscience, and the Holy Spirit and suddenly we, 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 we see what we've done. And you know during the day we didn't see it because we're like zipping around and we're busy and we're, we're just too busy with life managing everything to really do any kind of introspection. But then there in the middle of the night when it's just you and your conscience and the Holy Spirit, you begin to see how what you said or what you did or the pattern of things you've been saying and doing for years has been hurting people. You, you begin to see the effect it's had on relationships. You can no longer there in the middle of the night blame other people, but you start to see I've done this. This is my fault. And, and there's nowhere to run and hide from that. We find ourselves in the middle of the night like uh, Shakespeare's Lady Macbeth, trying to wash the spot out from her crime and just wondering how can I be clean Psalm 130 is a penitential psalm. That's what scholars call these. There's a number of penitential psalms in the Book of Psalms. Uh, probably the most famous one is Psalm 51. Uh, that's the psalm that King David wrote after his affair with Bathsheba. And psalm 130 is another one. And what the penitential psalms do—they're really great. They—they they help us put into words what we need to put into words when we suddenly come to grips with the fact that we are in a pit that we have dug for ourselves. Notice how the psalm begins, verses 1 and 2. Out of the depths I cry to you, O Lord. O Lord, hear my voice. Let your ears be attentive to my cry for mercy. So he's in a pit, he's in the depths, and, and he's crying out for God's mercy for his sins. So what do we do when we find ourselves in that place when we come to realize that we've met the enemy and the enemy is us, and we are we are a big part of the problem and our sin. Well, what this psalm does, let me just give you the outline of the psalm. Let me just sort of show you where it goes. In verses 3 and 4, you have what what I'm going to call two massive truths, two gigantic truths that that you have to embrace and understand. And then in verses 5 through 8, you have two uh, responses to those massive truths, So that's kind of the flow of the psalm. You start out in verse one and two, the guy's crying out for God's mercy. And then in verses three and four, he meditates on two massive truths that that we all have to get. They're basic truths, but they have to be embraced, internalized, accepted. And when they are accepted, they will propel us toward two responses that come as a consequence of that. So that's the flow of the psalm. There's a kind of a logic to it. So let's just, let's just follow the logic. Let's look at, first of all, at the two great truths that in those moments of uh, moral clarity, in those moments of self-awareness, these first two truths that we have to accept. Here's the first truth. It's in verse three. If you, O Lord, kept a record of sins, O Lord, who could stand? There's the first great truth. That if God were to hold any of us accountable for our sins we would all fall that that if if god were to call court to session as he will do at the end of the world and god were to cause us to stand before him and god were to bring forward the evidence of our lives we will all be found guilty nobody will stand there's nobody who can stand before God on that day and say, well, you know, I'm not that bad. Nah, I'm, I'm an okay guy. I'm a decent person. You know, courtrooms don't work that way. Judges don't, you know, if, if, you're, if you're on trial for a crime, the judge doesn't say, well, yeah, you, you robbed the bank, but, you know, you, you're, otherwise you're a pretty good person. I mean, you know, you mow, you know, mow that person's lawn next door and you do this and eh, it's okay. It all balances out. That's not how the courtroom works. The evidence is in, and if if God were to hold us accountable for our sin, we would all be found guilty. And that's the first truth we have to embrace, that we don't have what it takes to be pleasing to God. As the Bible says, all have sinned and fall short. No one stands. We all fall short of the glory of God. As the Bible says, there's none righteous, no, not one. There's none who understands. There is none who seeks for God. We are all a sinful people and guilty before the Lord. You've got to accept that truth. We have a hard time accepting that truth. I have a hard time accepting that truth. I, I don't like to think that way about myself. When we admit our faults, we tend to kind of minimize it or couch it or frame it in a way that's not as bad. Like, yeah, you know, I make my mistakes and I, you know, I'm, not, I'm not perfect. I mean, I'm not a saint. You know, but, but, blah, 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 blah. And, and, and we sort of, you know, shrink it down, and we say, and of course, that person over there, I mean, you know, they're, they've did that to me, so no wonder I did this. And, and we, we somehow position it and try to frame it in a way that makes us not look as guilty, and, and we do that to ourselves. Um, but God sees through all that. He sees all the evidence. We, we, we like to present a well-crafted tip of the iceberg of our sin, but God sees the whole mass of it underwater, even the, the things that we don't see in ourselves. Uh, I, I found this cool quote by Horatius Bonar. Horatius Bonar was a Scottish pastor in the 19th century. And he said this, man has always treated sin as a misfortune, not a crime. As disease, not guilt, as a case for the physician, not for the judge. Let me read that again. Man has always treated sin as a misfortune, not a crime, as disease, not guilt, as a case for the physician, not for the judge. He goes on, herein lies the essential faultiness of all merely human religions and theologies. They fail to acknowledge the judicial aspect of the judicial aspect of the question as that on which the real answer must hinge. And they fail to recognize the guilt or criminality of the evildoer as that which must first be dealt with. So this is the first great truth that confronts us, that we are in a big jam and that none of us can stand before God based upon our, our track record or our efforts That if God, as it says in verse 3, were to keep a record of sins, nobody could stand before him. That's a sobering thought. You think, boy, how does that help me? Here I am in the middle of the night, (laughs) grieving over things I've done wrong, and so the first step is to acknowledge that that it's even worse than I thought, and, and that I can't stand before God. I mean, that sounds like you're pushing me down deeper in the hole, not lifting me out. But, you know, we've got to have an accurate diagnosis. And until we really own our depravity, until we finally jettison all of that self-deception about, well, it's not that bad. And and once we really own the fact that we are sinful, guilty people before God, we will never be ready to be awed and stunned and melted by the second great truth, which is in verse 4. But with you, there is forgiveness. Therefore, you are feared. The first great truth is that if God calls us to account for our sins, we are done for. But the second great truth is that that same God who is our judge, that same God who stands over us is also a God with whom there is forgiveness. That God is ready to forgive. As it says in Psalm 103, verse 10, he does not treat us as our sins deserve or repay us according to our iniquities. Ah, forgiveness with God. Isn't that, it's amazing that, that, you know, we're we're accused, we're tried, we're guilty, we're sentenced, and then pardoned. After all that, we're, we're totally done And then, after it's all done and we're ready to go to the gallows, God says, I pardon. There is forgiveness with God. Have you ever been forgiven in your life? Anyone here ever experienced, like, maybe you hurt somebody in your life? You know, you really hurt someone and you finally came to them and you made a real apology. Not like, well, I'm sorry, but of course. But just like, I'm sorry. I did this, this, and this. I, I have no excuse. Would you forgive me? And the other person maybe they respond with anger, they're hey, darn right, blah, blah, blah. And they but after a while, it, they, through tears, they finally say, I forgive you. Have you ever been forgiven? It it's amazing to be forgiven. To really own guilt and then to have someone really pardon you is one of the most liberating, humbling experiences in human experience. And to think that there is forgiveness with God, that God has forgiveness ready to bestow. It's not just forgiveness. I mean, look, look how the, the psalm develops it. Look down at the end. Look at verses 7 and 8. That The psalmist, we'll get to this in a minute, but he's thinking about proclaiming this to the world. And he says in verse 7, O Israel, put your hope in the Lord, for with the Lord is unfailing love. So with him there is forgiveness, with him there is unfailing love. That word unfailing love, the Hebrew word there, oh, it's such a cool Hebrew word. Um, It's the the Hebrew word chesed. So say chesed, but kind of, say it like you're kind of clear your throat, right? Chesed, that's the word. It's a great word. If you 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 want to geek out on Hebrew, that's a good word to geek out on. Uh, Chesed is, is like this rich word, and it means, you know, unfailing love, it means grace, it means kindness, it means loyalty. Uh, that, that God is loyal in his love to his people even when they are disloyal, and, and, and God is, is just overcoming their disloyalty with his love and compassion. It's the disposition of God that desires to forgive and to have mercy even on those who do not f- deserve that forgiveness. That's part of God's character. Um, there, there's a great uh, passage in the book of Exodus let's, let's just turn there um, put a bookmark here yeah we got time let's go there Exodus chapter 34 page 88 in the Pew Bible so this is a really cool story where Moses is talking to God Moses has led the people out of Egypt they've got the Ten Commandments And then he's hanging out with God, and he has the audacity to say to God, show me your glory. God, I wanna see you, I wanna know who you are, as if saving us out of Egypt and doing all these miracles wasn't enough. I want more, I want you, God, and I wanna know who you are and what you're like. And so there's this amazing scene in Exodus chapter 34, verse five, where God says, okay, I'm going to show you my glory. Verse 5, then the Lord came down in the cloud and stood there with him and proclaimed his name, the Lord. And he passed in front of Moses proclaiming, the Lord, the Lord, the compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger, abounding in chesed and faithfulness maintaining love to thousands, and forgiving wickedness, rebellion, and sin. Yet he does not leave the guilty unpunished. He punishes the children and their children for the sin of the fathers to the third and fourth generation. Yes, he's holy. He still is the judge. But for those who are ready to turn to him, he is ready to forgive, because he is the gracious and compassionate God, slow to anger, abounding in chesed and faithfulness and maintaining love to thousands. That's God's heart. And so we have confidence to come to God even when we look at our lives and perhaps there have been years and decades of sin and destruction through our own choices and broken relationships and wasted time and money and ruined careers. And even at that point, God is still full of chesed. With him, there is forgiveness. With him, there is loving kindness and compassion. And that's why we can go to him. You know, why would God forgive me? Maybe God would forgive me because I'm not that bad after all. It's not why. God forgives, not because we're something worth forgiving, but because he is full of chesed. That's him. That's who he is. And then there's one more. Look at verse eight or verse seven. O Israel, put your I'm back in Psalm 130, verse seven. O Israel, put your hope in the Lord, for the Lord with the Lord is unfailing love, and with him is full redemption. So with the Lord is forgiveness, with the Lord is unfailing love, his hesed, and with the Lord is full redemption. Ah, oh, redemption's another great word. Redemption means paying the price to purchase somebody out of slavery. It's when somebody is caught or trapped or a prisoner and a price is paid so that person can go free. So God not only forgives and God not only is full of loving kindness, but he's the God who does what it takes to free us. He's the God who pays the price to redeem us and rescue us. What a God. It's not just emotional talk. He's doing the work to save a people. He's a redeemer God, paying the price for us. And of course, we look at that verse from the New Testament angle. We, you know, this verse was written you know, thousands of years ago, but we look at it from our angle, and we see Jesus, and we see this is the ultimate expression of God's redemption, that the price God ultimately paid was Jesus himself, that when Jesus died on the cross, when he was shedding his blood, he was taking the judicial sentence that we deserve. He was being executed for our crimes. We got rescued out of the pit, and he got stuffed in it and a stone rolled in front of it. Jesus is the redemption price that was paid. And so we see that this God, is, he's done everything. He forgives. His heart is toward those who repent. He's paid the price of redemption for his people. There's a verse in the New Testament that ties this all together so well. I put a bookmark here again. You need to see this one too. Go to the book of Ephesians in the New Testament, chapter one, page 1156, 1,156. See it with your own thrown eyes. Ephesians chapter one, verses seven and eight. So it says in Ephesians 1, just check this out, in him, that is in Jesus, that's the him, we have redemption through his blood. What else do we have? The forgiveness of sins in accordance with the riches of God's grace, his his compassion, his loving kindness that he lavished on us. That's not a great verb. That this redemption and this forgiveness and this grace that God has, he's not like a stingy old miser that you gotta talk into, okay, Bob Cratchit. You know, he's not Scrooge. All right, here's one crumb of grace. No, this is the God who's sending, lavishing grace and forgiveness and redemption upon his people. Lavishing it upon us. That's our God. There's forgiveness with him. So my friends, these are the two truths we have to accept that if it's just based on me and my track record, I cannot stand, you cannot stand, nobody here is spiritual enough, nobody here is religious enough, nobody here has done enough community service, nobody here has served long enough on the Baptist Church committees, nobody here has done whatever it is that we think we need to do, nobody can stand. But, There is forgiveness with him. There is compassion. There is redemption lavished on those who come to him. These are the two great truths of the gospel. That you are a great sinner. Own it. Own it. You are a great sinner. But Jesus Christ is a great sinner. Savior of great sinners. These are the two pillars of the gospel. And we have to embrace them. We have to not just understand them. That's, of course, the first step. But we've got to, like, get it down in here where we're like, oh, I believe that at a deep level. Not just, yeah, that's what the church says, and I sang that in a song, but, like, I Feel that I know that is true, that I am a great sinner, but Christ is a great Savior. That there's more grace in Jesus than there is sin in me, and to own that and believe that. And when we do, when those two great truths sink down into our soul and recapture our minds and our hearts and our thoughts, it will propel us toward two responses. There's two responses in verses 5 through 8 that just flow naturally like dominoes. When those two truths are accepted, boom, the dominoes start to fall. And the first response is this. We begin to wait upon God and trust in God for forgiveness rather than looking to ourselves. Look at verse five. I wait for the Lord. My soul waits, and in his word I put my hope. This is the first response, is we wait for God's forgiveness. Because if you really accept the first two truths, what else are you gonna do? I can't fix it. I can't make myself right with God. There's forgiveness with him, so what can I do? I can just come to the judge and say, I plead the mercy of the court, I have heard that you are a merciful judge. I need mercy. I I don't need a better lawyer to argue a better case for me. I just need mercy from the judge. Have mercy, O Lord. And we wait. You know, verse 5, and in his word I put my hope. Lord, I know my life. I know my mistakes. I know my sins. But I've read in your word, Lord, I've read in this very psalm that you are full of forgiveness and compassion. I read that in your word. I read in your word that you sent Jesus to die for me. And so I'm putting my hope not in my ability to to fix myself. I'm putting my hope in what your word says about who you are and what you have done. And I will wait. I will wait for your forgiveness. And look at the waiting process. It's described in verse 6. Really powerful images. Remember, this is poetry, so it's got a lot of images and emotion. And it's a powerful image in verse 6. My soul waits for the Lord. More than a watchman watchmen wait for the morning. More than watchmen wait for the morning. Anyone here ever worked a night shift? Yeah. They kind of stink. It's quiet. That's a good thing. But the night shift, right? You're not only waiting for the end of the, the work night to end. Let's say work day, work night. You're not just counting the, the, the clock, watching the clock like everyone does at work. But, but you're also watching the sky. It's dark. Hours and hours of darkness and cold. And then you start watching for the this you know the black to turn into like charcoal and the charcoal to turn into gray and the and it starts lightning and, and then you know you're looking out the window and you see it turning orange in the east you're waiting for the morning to come you wait I heard a sermon preached on Psalm one thirty earlier this year by uh, Josh Moody he's the pastor of College Church in Wheaton he was here for a preaching conference that was really great and he preached Psalm one thirty and and he he, he it was interesting. He said, you know, you ought to actually just try this. That, that the next time it's three in the morning and it's you and the Holy Spirit and your conscience. And, and the memories come back of, of regret. You know, the, the, the memories, that, the, the regret for the things that you could have done that maybe would have done something different with the marriage. The regret you feel for things you've said to children over the years, the regret for the abortion, the regret for the, the, the addiction that did so much damage, when, when, when all of those things haunt you in the middle of the night, he says, cry out to God, cry out for his forgiveness, and then do this, get a chair and put it by a window. Get a blanket, make some coffee, get a Coke, whatever, and just wait. Watch. Even if it's a couple hours, just sit there and watch the black turn into charcoal, watch the charcoal turn into gray, watch the gray turn into hues of blue. And then, and then see the lightning in the east and then see the orange starting to streak up through the clouds and finally watch and watch until that the burning disc of the sun pierces the horizon. And know that just as certainly as the sun rises in the east, so God's forgiveness will come to all who wait upon him and all who call out to Christ. We'll see his forgiveness rise. Wait and watch. Where is your hope this morning? Have you ever put your faith in Jesus Christ? That's what it means to be a Christian, by the way. Don't confuse being a Christian with coming to church or trying to be a law-abiding citizen. A Christian is a person who has come to face with those two great truths that I'm a great sinner but Christ is a great savior and they have, they have put, they've gone all in, all of their chips, all of their hope on Christ and they're waiting for his forgiveness. And even as Christians, I, I find I have to do this on a regular basis. Confession is a regular discipline in the Christian life. As I continue to be snapped out of my self-sufficiency and I need to keep coming back to the cross, and saying, Jesus, I need you to I need you to forgive me again. I need you to help me. I, I don't have the strength to be this person that I read I'm supposed to be in the Bible. Would you help me, Lord? May your grace continue to transform me. I want to love you. I, I want to obey you. Lord, strengthen me. So that we need to depend daily upon His grace. Grace is not just what saves us, grace is what continues to transform us. We're saved by grace, we live by grace, we reach eternal life by grace through faith. And when that happens, when, when you've really experienced this, or, or if you're a Christian, when you've re-experienced it, because sometimes we have to do that, we have to keep re-experiencing these things, and, and you come get back in touch with it again as a Christian, what, what it does then is it causes the second response, the next domino falls. So when we've seen the two great truths that if any of us were to be held to account for our sins no one could stand but there is forgiveness and chesed and redemption with him and therefore we wait upon the Lord and we experience his forgiveness that, that just propels the next one which is tell people about it. It's what you might call evangelism or proclamation or speaking the gospel. It's in verses 7 to 8. Notice how the psalmist turns from this this conversation talking about the Lord and he begins to tell his, his friends, what to do? He's starting to tell Israel. He's preaching. He's he's gospeling. He says, "Oh Lord, oh Israel, put your hope in the Lord, for with the Lord is unfailing love. With Him is full redemption. He Himself will redeem Israel from all their sins." Telling others, he's excited. That's what we do, right? You find a diet, you lose thirty pounds, you look great. Oh, let me tell you all about it. Okay, okay, enough, right? You know no, 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 it's awesome, and you eat this, and you do that, and you put this shake, and you do these jumping jacks, and okay, you know, it, we're just excited, because something's worked for us. Oh, you've got to see this new app I found, it's changed my life, it saves me time and money, and we're just, anything that changes our life, that's positive, we just want to tell people about it. It's normal. And when we've really been affected by the gospel, it's something we want people to know. As we meet other people and, and they talk about things in their lives and every once in a while their sin comes out, we, we just want, we're like, oh you gotta know <laughs> there's a savior and you're a sinner but that's okay because Christ saves sinners and oh, he saved me and blah 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 it just comes out. I don't know what, what you think of evangelism. You hear the word evangelism. I think we have stereotypes. Like evangelism is sort of like working at a, yeah, this is a stereotype. Evangelism is like working at a uh, you know, telemarketing thing, and you just walk up to people and you, you kick into a script, da da da, and then if they do this, then I go here da 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 But if they say that, then I go da da And there's this like flowchart of responses that I'm trying to corral them to a certain reaction, you know. Or, or, or what's an evangelist? Well, an evangelist is an extrovert who's really good at talking to people. He could talk to a stump and the stump would talk back. That's an evangelist. He's really funny and really winsome and just good at arguing and very really, and can just kind of talk people into things. That's so that's not me, because I don't know I don't know the the, the schlick uh, flowchart and I'm not very good with people and I'm kind of an introvert. Actually, I don't really like people. So you know how am I? I'm not an evangelist. But don't you see that all evangelism really is? is just the message that you're a great sinner who can't save yourself, but Jesus Christ died and rose again to save sinners. You just heard the gospel in two sentences. There it is. And an evangelist, I think the best evangelists, are the people who are still in awe of that truth personally. Because they're the people who aren't talking about it because of guilt. They're just like, Wow. I'm still in touch with this. Which I think is one of the challenges of being a Christian for decades. Some of you here have been Christians for decades. Some of you are new Christians and you're still like, woo! We love you. We need you in our church because it reminds us. But after you've been a Christian for decades, it's just our sinful nature we begin to forget the awe and wonder of our salvation. And so we need the Lord to remind us. We need God to keep us in a state of awe and wonder. I I think to a degree, our, our evangelistic fervor will be directly proportional to our sense of awe and wonder of our own receiving of God's grace, both at our conversion and on a daily basis as we lean into him. May the Lord renew in our church a a glory in the gospel. May, May revival come to our church. Because in revival, people become very aware of their sin. And they become very awed again at our Savior. May God revive us again. May the gospel never become just kind of old hat to us. May we continue to tremble. May we continue to embrace these truths and call upon the Lord on a daily basis as we walk in grace. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we come to you confessing our sin. Maybe there's some of us here who came in this today and are, it's front and center in our minds. Oh Lord, I pray that we would believe these truths and we would wait upon you. God, I pray show us our sin. Whatever it is that needs to be cleared away. Oh Lord, we often say we want revival, but do we really want you to purify us? Oh Lord, purify us, we pray purify this church, help our church to be in awe of the gospel. God, I pray that you would help anyone here who, who maybe thinks they're a Christian because they grew up in a church tradition, but help them to see that Christianity is really about faith in Jesus. And Lord, would you give them that, that insight in their soul? God we pray for a great revival and great awakening we, we pray that these simple truths of the gospel would land on us again as if we'd never heard them and they would transform us God we pray for revival in congregations all around the south shore Lord I pray for First Baptist Church in Weymouth pray for South Weymouth Church in the Nazarene I pray for North River Community Church Lord we lift up Grace Presbyterian in Hanover and Lord we could go on and on but Lord, we believe you have so much grace, you could just lavish it on your churches, that your churches all over would be awakened. I pray, Lord, for brothers and sisters here like me who've been Christians for decades, that you might rekindle our first love, our first love for you, that original love and awe we had when we were saved. And so, Lord, keep us, keep us fresh. Make the gospel real in our hearts. We pray this in Christ's name, amen.